don't have an opening scripture, but we'll get into it. And we'll have scripture along the way. But basically tonight we're going to camp out kind of in the book of James. And our main points will kind of come from each chapter of the book of James. But talking about the marks of a mature person. I believe tonight, just as we get into our introduction, that without a doubt, the number one cause of problems in our world is immaturity. I believe when you look at the reason people struggle in marriage, it's because people need to grow up. I know people get divorced because of money problems, but I believe part of the root cause is people just need to grow up. It's a lack of maturity. They're acting immature. And if we'd be honest tonight, we would have to admit that we get ourselves into all kinds of problems by saying immature things, making immature decisions, and acting in immature ways. Can I get an amen? The reality is we just need to grow up. I believe that when it comes to our spiritual life, God's will is for us to grow. You see, God doesn't want us to stay babes in Christ. God doesn't want us to keep sucking on the bottle. God doesn't want us to stay in diapers. God wants us to grow in our faith. God wants us to get past the ABCs and the elementary things, and He wants us to go on to maturity. He doesn't want you just to get your foot in the door and stay there. God wants you to go on to maturity. Amen? Look at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He said, hey, leave the principles, leave the elementary things and go on to perfection, go on to Maturity. First Peter 2 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. God says, grow up. Go on to maturity. God wants us to grow. And so we've got to answer the question what is maturity? Well, let's first of all answer it by looking at what maturity is not. Maturity is an age. It has nothing to do with how long you've lived or how long you've been a Christian. You can be a Christian for 50 years and not be mature. You can grow old spiritually without growing up spiritually. There's been people that's been in church their entire life, but they haven't matured in their faith. Let's just be honest. That's how it is. Maturity isn't appearance. Some people look mature. Some people look more spiritual than the rest of us. They look like they're dignified. They look like they're holy. But the fact is you can look really spiritual and not be spiritual at all. In fact, let me say this for those of us that are Pentecostal people. Sometimes we wear that like that's a badge of spirituality. But here's the thing. You can talk in tongues but really not be all that mature. Maturity has nothing to do with achievement. Or what you accomplish. You can accomplish a lot and still be very immature. You can achieve all kinds of awards and still not be mature. 
Maturity has nothing to do with academics, how many degrees you have or how much education you have. Listen, I'm all for education. I'm all for trying to get wisdom. But here's the thing. You can be smart and highly educated and still not be mature. So what is maturity? Here it is. Maturity is about attitude. Attitude is what makes the difference. Here it is. It's your character. It's what you are on the inside that makes the difference. God says it's our attitude that determines whether we're mature or not. God wants us to grow up and have Christ-like attitudes. God wants us to become more and more like Jesus. Do you understand? That's what God wants from us. He wants you to be more and more like Jesus. He wants you to be more and more like His Son. He wants the fruit of the Spirit to be developed in your life and in mine. That's what God wants. Listen to what Paul desired for the believers in Galatia. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I want Christ to be formed in you. That should be our desire as well. That Christ be formed in us. Amen. That people look at us and they see Christ in us. Not that they see me, but they see Jesus. Listen, if people still look at you and they see you, they're seeing the wrong thing. They need to see Jesus. They need to see His light. They need to see His grace. They need to see His love. Amen? Listen to what Paul said to, to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 13, 14. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice this. That we henceforth be no more Children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Do you see that? He wants us to become a perfect man. That we be no more children tossed to and fro. You see, children are easily led astray. They're easily deceived. They're easily uh, conned. He says, I want you to become a perfect man. I want you to uh, attain the full unity and reach the full stature of Christ. Don't be no more children. Don't be easily deceived. I want you to grow. You see, that is God's desire. That we grow spiritually. That we be developed spiritually. You see, God doesn't want you just to be saved and settled down. God wants us to grow. In fact, let me say it this way. God doesn't want us just to be saved so we can go to heaven. If that was God's main goal, just to take you to heaven, He ought to save you, kill you, and take you to heaven. Right? If that's His main goal, just to take me to heaven, go ahead and take me on out of here. God wants me to become like Jesus so that I can be useful for His kingdom. He wants me to grow so that I can serve Him by serving other people. He wants me to grow so that I can do a work for Him. In other words, I come to the cross to be saved, but then He wants me to take up the cross and follow Him. But some people don't want to take up the cross because that means they've got to grow. And they got to give up some things. But God wants growth. So here's the question. 
How do you measure spiritual maturity? Well, here's the thing. You can't compare yourselves against other people. You have to compare yourself to the Word of God. And so in the book of James, we have a manual on maturity. James uses the word maturity five times in five chapters, and he gives us five marks of maturity. So number one, a mature person is positive under pressure. A mature person is positive under pressure. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. That means mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let me ask you, how do you handle trials? How do you react to problems? Do they blow you away? Do you get nervous, uptight, or negative? Do you grumble and gripe? Do you worry and get upset? When problems come your way, how do you handle them? You see, here's the reality. As long as we live, there's going to be problems, there's going to be hardships, and there's going to be difficult days. I wish I could tell you that when you come to Christ, that all of your worries are going to disappear, and all of your sorrows are going to disappear, and all of your troubles are going to go away. But here's the thing. As long as you live, as long as you have breath in your body, and especially as long as you follow Jesus, there's going to be some trouble and trial and suffering along the way. But here's the thing. When it comes, how are you going to respond? James says, when they come, have a joyful attitude. He says, when trouble comes, count it all joy. He says, when they come, you should learn to rejoice. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. We can control our attitude. Amen? I can't control whether or not how my day goes, but I can control my attitude when... Things begin to go south. Amen. I can choose to rejoice. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. In fact, Paul said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I may not be thankful for everything that happens, but I can be thankful in everything that happens. Why? Because I'm in Christ Jesus. That's my strength. That's my source of gratitude. I'm in Christ and in everything I can be thankful. I can choose joy. So let me ask you, what is your natural attitude and your natural bent when things don't go right? Are you negative or are you positive? Is your life filled with gratitude or grumbling? Are you affirmative or are you angry most of the time? If we just be honest, many times we like to have pity parties. Many times we like to gripe. Many times we like to get upset. Many times we like to get alone and just grumble about how things aren't going our way and nobody talked to me and nobody likes me. But here's the thing. You've got to choose to have the right attitude. You've got to choose to worship. You've got to choose to rejoice. You've got to choose to be joyful. Amen? Let me just say this. Complaining ain't going to make it any better. Complaining is not going to make your problems go away. But I promise you, if you'll choose the right attitude, you'll feel better. Amen? In His presence, there's fullness of joy. If you'll get in the presence of God, you'll feel a whole lot better. Amen? 
why can't we just understand that? If you can just get in the presence of God, you'll feel a whole lot better. It might not, not change the circumstance. It might not change the problem. But it will certainly change how you feel. Amen? Look at James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation or endures trials. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. He says you're blessed when you endure the times of testing. We all, we all want to be blessed, don't we? But you've got to be willing to endure the times of testing, endure the times of temptation, endure the times of trial. And here's the way you endure it. You've got to learn how to have the right attitude to get through it. Because here's the thing. If you gripe and grumble all the time, guess what? You're going to keep going through it. You've got to learn how to sing in your prison time. You've got to learn how to sing during your wilderness. You've got to learn how to sing during your valley. A mature person is positive even when they're going through bad times. Paul and Silas at midnight in prison began to pray and sing. Talk about being positive under pressure. That's, that's them. He writes the book of Philippians. He's under house arrest. He's chained to guards. And then he talks about joy and rejoicing. Always. Wow. Why? Because he was mature. He'd grown in the Lord. See, when you grow in the Lord, no matter what comes your way, you can still rejoice. And that takes growth. It takes growth to know that when you're about to lose everything, God, I'll bless you. You see, it, it takes a, a strong person of faith like Job when you've lost everything. I'll bless the name of the Lord. Stay positive. That the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Naked I came into this world and I'll leave naked. It takes growth to stay positive. Right? Let me ask you. Can any of us say we're there? Probably not. I wish I could say I'm there, but i got a ways to go. I still like to have my pity parties every now and then. I still like to have my griping sessions every now and then. Don't we all? I'd like to get to a place, no matter what comes my way, hell or high water, God, I'm going to bless you. God, I'm going to rejoice. Because God, if you take it all, you're still good, even though things are bad. Amen? The first sign of maturity is that you're able to stay positive under pressure. When things go wrong, you're still able to rejoice. When things go wrong, you don't allow the circumstances to rob you of joy. And if you aren't careful, circumstances will rob you of joy. You have to be positive under pressure. But here's the second mark of maturity. A mature person is sensitive to people. Look at James chapter 2, verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. I believe a mature person is sensitive to people. 
He doesn't just see his own needs. He sees the needs of others as well. He understands the hurts and he's not just interested in himself. You see, God says that love, being interested in others, is a mark of maturity. Let's go back to James chapter 2 and read the first six verses. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there come, should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and find a pair of them, there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. James tells us that when we show partiality and favoritism, we're being unloving. Because there in verse 8, he says, if you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbors yourself, he says, you're doing well, you're doing right. And he's talking about discrimination. He's talking about showing favoritism. He's talking about showing partiality. And so he says that if we begin to show favoritism and discriminate and show partiality, he says we are being unloving. In fact, let me say this. When we begin to discriminate against people and treat people unfairly and show partiality to this one over this one, we aren't being anything like God. We're being unchristian. We're being as far from being unlike God as you can be. Because God doesn't show favoritism. God has no respect to persons. And so when we discriminate, whether it be based on people's financial status or skin color, whatever it may be, we're being unlike God. And we're being unloving. And so the second test of maturity is love. How do you treat other people? And so that's why we've got to examine. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me. Nothing. Oh, we like gifts, don't we? But Paul says, without love, nothing else really matters. You see, we can be the most spiritually gifted person there is, but without love, it's meaningless. Talk in tongues all you want to, but if you don't have love in your heart, it's a bunch of noise. You can have all the faith in the world that you can move mountains, but without love, It's vanity. It's empty. It's nothing. Give yourself as a sacrifice to be burned. But it's nothing. Let me ask you, how do you treat others? You know, Jesus tells us how we ought to treat people. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat Notice, he didn't say treat them the way they treat you. He says treat them how you want to be treated. See, normally we want to treat people how they've treated us. 
That's not what Jesus said, is it? Treat people the way you want them to treat you. So how do you want to be treated? You want to be treated with respect, kindness, dignity. That's how you treat people. Well, they don't deserve my respect. It don't matter. How do you want to be treated? That's how you treat them. Let me ask you, do you love other people? They don't deserve my love. It don't matter that they deserve it or not. Guess what? You don't deserve God's love. Neither do I. But He loves us. And gave Himself for us. We were unlovable. We love Him because He first loved us. Think about this. What's the great commandment? Love God. You know what the second is? Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. I've I've never met anybody who hates themselves. If you do, you're a miserable person. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So a mature person is sensitive to people. You treat people right. You treat people fair. You respect people. You notice that Jesus always treated people the right way? Sinful people. Prostitutes. In fact, he was called what? The friend of He hung out with people that most Christians today would not hang out with. We wouldn't let those kind of people want to show up in our church today. But Jesus was their friend. We feel we're good for That's how we feel. We've got a lot of growing up today. Because if not for the grace of God, it could be Amen? I know we're not sinless like Jesus is, and if we aren't careful, we might we, we, we could stumble and fall, but here's the thing. We've got to learn how to treat people. Which means we can't look down our noses at people because of what they do. Because I'll say it again, if not for the grace of God, there go I. It could be me. It could be me. It could be you. And, 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 and let me just say this about Jesus dealing with sinful people. Sinful people had no problem coming up to Jesus. And yet, and we live in a world today where sinful people don't want anything to do with the church. Why? Because I'm afraid that many times the church looks nothing like Jesus. Because we don't have the love that Jesus had. 
Let's just be honest. Let me move on. Number three, a mature person has tamed their tongue. I probably got more notes in this section than I do the other sections. Because this is a biggie. Because no man can tame the tongue. But we, we need the help of God with this. But if you want to know you're really growing in your faith, you've learned how to manage your mouth. Because more than anything, our mouth probably gets us in trouble than anything else. Look at James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a, notice it, perfect man, a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. In World War II, there was this saying, loose lips sink ships. But can I also say this, just to take off from that phrase? Loose lips destroy lives. Words hurt people. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Listen, I know sticks and stones, they'll hurt too, but listen, words will hurt too. Amen? Words hurt. They wound us. They cut us. And people can say, I'm sorry. People can apologize. But here's the thing. Once words have wounded you, you've been wounded. And I know people say, time heals all wounds. Uh, Not always. Those people who carry around grudges and things that's been said to them for years and years and years and they, they hold on to it and they nurse it. And listen, there's people that have gone on to be convicted felons and murderers and things like that because of things that have been spoken to them. Words. Powerful. Gossip is deadly. It ruins people's reputations and destroys relationships. Can I give you a definition of Gossip. Hearing something you like about somebody you don't. That's the definition of gossip. Hearing something you like about somebody you don't. That's that's what makes it so good, isn't it? What makes it so juicy. James tells us, though, that if we can master our mouth, we can master our our entire body. Isn't that what he says? If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. In other words, self-control comes from tongue control. You see, we get ourselves into so much trouble with what we say and what we think. And here's the thing, if you just let it stop in your mind instead of it coming out in your mouth, you wouldn't get into so much trouble. But here's the thing, we, often it comes out of our mouth and we don't let it stop, stop up there. That's what gets us into trouble. Do you understand that what you can say can destroy your life and the lives of others? Words are powerful. All it takes is a judge sitting up before somebody and his words can send somebody to prison or set them free. Words are powerful. 
Our tongue can bring delight to people's lives or it can discourage people's lives. Our tongue is a powerful force for good or for evil. Proverbs 18, 21, you know it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Every time we open our mouth to speak, we can speak life or we can speak death. So let me ask you, which one are you speaking? What are you you're speaking one or the other? Which one are you speaking? Ephesians 4.29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who... Listen, right there on your outline, circle that word any. Notice that. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for building others up. When you talk, don't just say things to build yourself up. Say things to build others up as well. So listen, I, I, I believe in being positive. I believe in trying to declare the Scriptures over our life. And, but here's the thing. Build other people up as well. Be an encourager. Amen? If it doesn't build somebody else up, don't say it. Even if it is true. If it doesn't build somebody up, don't say it. That's a mark of maturity. A mature person manages his mouth. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you can't master your mouth, you've missed the point. I want you to listen to another scripture James talks about. James 1.26 If any man among you, notice this, seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is Vain. That's that's pretty scary. You can memorize Scripture and know the Bible from cover to cover, but if you're a gossip and somebody who stirs up strife and causes division, your religion is worthless. In fact, James says you've deceived your own heart. That's scary. If you're always saying the wrong thing or uh, something that's not accurate, you're always exaggerating, you're speaking impulsively, your religion's worthless. We can't get this under control. And listen, I know we can't do it by ourselves because James says in chapter 3, no man can tame the tongue. We, We need the help of God. We need the help of the Holy Ghost to tame the tongue. But if you're always speaking rashly and always speaking harsh words and cruel words and running people down and causing just trouble and stirring things up and, and, and claiming to be religious and claiming to be a believer and can't ever tame your tongue, your religion is worthless. Your heart is deceived. Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we can go past, we can, we, we can deal with this thing. Well, I didn't mean to say it. Listen, if it's in the well, it's coming out. If it's in there, it's coming out. Your tongue is a tattletale on what's in your heart. Out of the heart proceeds murderers and adulteries and all the, the, the heart, the tongue will tell what's in the heart. And so people can 
can, can, can use off these off-color jokes and coarse jesting and all these things that the Bible talks about and say, well, I didn't mean to say it. No, but it's in there. It, if it wasn't in there, it wouldn't come out. It's a heart problem. You've heard me say this, the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And you might be thinking, well, preacher, what about speaking the truth in love? Aren't we supposed to speak the truth? Yeah. And speak the truth in love. But here's the thing. Speaking the truth in love means you've got to have the right attitude, the right timing, the right place, the right location, and the right motive. That don't mean you're sitting there with the truth waiting to pounce on somebody and unload on somebody because you know the truth. You've got to have the right motive, the right attitude, and you've got to know exactly when you're supposed to say it. Because here's the thing, you can know the right word to say and say it the wrong attitude, and you're wrong. Amen? A mature person can tame his tongue, can manage his mouth. And we do that with the help of God, the help of the Holy Ghost. Let, let me move on. We're going to run out of time. Number four. A mature person is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James talking about conflict. He says there are inner quarrels and fights and they come from our own inner desires. And so we've got to ask ourselves, am I a peacemaker or am I a troublemaker? Do I like to argue? Am I a contentious person? Do I get my feelings hurt? Do I get defensive easily? And do I hurt other people's feelings? See, the mark of a mature person is the lack of conflict in his own life. I know some people, and not, not here, but I know there's some people out there, they just, they just like looking for trouble. They like stirring stuff up. But here's the thing. Why is there so much conflict in the world? Why is there so much conflict in marriages? Why is, is there so much conflict at places where we work? Why is there so much conflict between Christians? Well, I believe James gives us two reasons for conflict. Look at verse 3 of James 4. He says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. The first cause of conflict is selfishness. That's it. Selfishness. When I want what I want, then I'm going to have conflict with somebody else. If it's all about me, myself, and I, guess what? We're going to have conflict. If it's all about my needs and what I want, we're going to have conflict. If I've got to have it my way, sister, we're going to have conflict. If, 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 if we're going to do it my way, we're going to have trouble. If I don't consider nobody else, we're going to have trouble, aren't we? If you consider only yourself and nobody else, there's going to be trouble. Selfishness creates conflict. And guess what? When you get 35 people in here on a Sunday morning and we all come in here saying, I want it my way, guess what you, guess what you got? You, you, you got a recipe for conflict. When everybody comes in here saying, I want my song sung, and you don't get your song sung, guess what? You got trouble. Now, I, I use that just kind of as an illustration. We don't, we don't have those kind of issues. But, here, but here's the thing. I mean, just imagine. There, there are some churches where, where pastor, all he has to do is go, he has to constantly try to put out fires. 
I mean, that, that's what some, in some churches, pastors have to do. Try to keep people happy and constantly put out fires. And that's why you can't win nobody to Jesus because you have to constantly put out fires and keep people happy and keep the conflict from spreading because of selfishness. You will, how do you tell if a person's immature? One way is to look at how they pray. If their prayers are always self-centered, bless me, prosper me, protect me, use me, help me. If that's the only way you pray, kind of immature. There's nothing wrong for praying for our needs. There's nothing wrong for asking God to use us. But if, but if that's all, only way we pray every time and never ask God to bless anybody else or touch somebody else, pretty selfish. Pretty immature. Amen? The other source of conflict is judging others, being, being judgmental. Look at James 4, verse 11 and 12. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? God says, don't judge people. See, God is the only one who can fairly judge others. And when we become the judge of others, guess, guess whose place you're taking? I don't want to sit in God's place. That's what it says in James, isn't it? I take his place. I become judge. And I begin to look at people. And so here's the thing. If we're always finding fault, always stirring up strife, and always spreading rumors, it's a sign of immaturity. Number five. A mature person is patient and prayerful. A mature person is patient and prayerful. Let's look at these three verses. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. Verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And then verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Circle the words patient and prayer. You can see them there in the verses. Verse 7, patient, and then there in verse 16, the word prayer. God says the mark of a mature person is that he is patient and is prayerful. Those, those are the two key words in chapter 5. The word patient is used four times, and the word prayer is used seven times. The mark of a mature person is they're patient, they're prayerful. And I believe those two go together. They, ex they express an attitude of dependence upon God. You'll notice in verse 7 that it gives the illustration of the farmer. And if anybody has to be patient or have patience, it's a farmer. A farmer has to do a lot of waiting. He plants a seed and he has to wait on a harvest. There's no such thing as an overnight crop. 
He has to put seed in the ground today and he doesn't go out tomorrow expecting to see a harvest. He knows that he has to wait weeks and months to ever see a harvest begin to come up. Sometimes he might have to get out there and pull weeds out of the ground and tend to the crop. He knows that he's got to wait. And so just like a farmer has to wait, sometimes we have to wait. We've got to wait on God to answer prayer. We've got to wait on God for a miracle. We have to wait on God to work in our lives. And so patience is a mark of maturity. And the only way you learn patience is by waiting. That's it. But here's the thing. We'd rather do anything than wait. We don't like waiting. But waiting produces maturity. Waiting produces character. Waiting allows God to work in your life. And let me say this. It's best to wait on God rather than get ahead of God and do things yourself. And so it's best to just learn how to be patient and wait on God. Because if we aren't careful, we'll mess things up. If we aren't careful, we'll create a bigger mess that God's got to clean up. Amen? So a mature person learns how to be patient. They stand still and they just trust in God. They are patient and they wait on the Lord. Let's read James 5, 16 to 18. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. You know, that's a good thing that we ought to do. Pray for one another. That you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Elijah was a praying man. And it meant... He prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Anybody else ever prayed and done that? I hadn't. And he prayed again, and the heavens began to bring forth rain. But here's the thing. He's an ordinary man. A man with passions like as we are. Subject to temptation like we were. In fact, he prayed and called fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel, and then he gets depressed because he hears Jezebel's going to try to have his head chopped off and runs out into the desert, sits down under a tree, and he asks God to take his life. I mean, just like us. But he was a man of prayer. And if we're going to be mature, we've got to learn to pray like Elijah prayed. Here's a few things about Elijah's praying. He prayed simple prayers. I believe it's somewhere around 63 words on Mount Carmel when fire fell. 63 words. You know how long it talks it, it, it takes to say 63 words? Not long. 63 words. And fire comes down from heaven. It don't take long prayer to get God's ear. It's a simple prayer. He prayed specific prayers though. He didn't beat around the bush. He prayed specific prayers. He knew what he was asking for. Let me just ask you this. When you go to God to prayer, do you know what you're praying for? Because here's the thing. If you don't know what you're praying for, how are you going to know when God answers? He prayed faith-filled prayers, meaning he believed God would answer. I mean, if you want God to consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel with fire, 
Why douse it with water? Unless you really believe God's going to answer. I mean, he didn't just douse it with water. I mean, he doused it until the trench he dug around the, around the altar was filled with water as well. I mean, it was sopping wet. Uh, that, that's an old country word if you've never heard that, but I mean, it was sopping wet. I mean, it was just, it was just water everywhere. And he just believed God was going to answer. Full of faith. God answered his prayer. And here's the thing, God answered our prayers as well. But guess what? God doesn't answer people's prayers who don't pray. An unoffered prayer is an unanswered prayer. And as I said weeks ago when I preached on prayer, Jesus said when you pray, not if you pray. We're expected to be people who pray. And that's a sign of maturity. I know when we first start out in our Christian walk that it's tough to get started praying, but here's the thing. The longer you walk with God, the more you ought to be spending time in prayer. And that means that other things have to be cut off, other things have to be set aside to find time for God in prayer. I know we can pray riding down the road. We can pray without ceasing as we're doing other daily activities and things like that. But there ought to be times where we just get along with God and spend time in prayer. Get into a secret place. Get into a place where you can shut the door as Jesus taught in Matthew 6 and pray to God in the secret place. And he who hears in the secret place will reward you openly. A mature person is a praying person. You see, a person who has learned how to pray will grow and mature in their walk with God. Listen, you, you, you need prayer like you need air to fill your lungs. Listen, you, you take air from our lungs and we stop living. You take prayer from your life. Man, your relationship with God is going to shrivel up. I'm not saying that you're going to fall away from God and, and, and miss heaven, but listen, I, I'm talking about your, your spiritual vitality and your strength. It's going to shrivel up. You'll struggle. You're going to struggle. A man or woman who's learned how to pray, you won't stop growing in your faith. A man or woman who's learned to pray, you won't drift away from God. You won't be enticed by the things of this world. That's why Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. Continue in prayer. Patience and prayer are marks of maturity. So I close tonight. How do you handle problems? Do you get up tight? And negative, do you grumble and gripe, complain? Or are you positive under pressure? Are you sensitive to other people? Are you concerned about their needs, desires? Or do you only see yourself? Can you manage your mouth? Have you learned to put a muzzle on it sometimes and just not speak? Let me just say that sometimes it's best not to say anything at all. I've found that out many times. It's best just not to say anything. 
Just be quiet. Walk away if you have to. Are you a troublemaker or a peacemaker? Do you have a tendency to stir things up? Do you carry a grudge? Do you find yourself nursing bitterness? Or are you a peacemaker? I believe Jesus said, What blessed are the peacemakers? Won't be a peacemaker. How long can you wait for an answer to prayer without giving up? Maybe God has every intention of giving it, but He's waiting to teach you maturity. Can you be patient? Can you wait? Can you hold on? Will you trust Him longer? To close, I ask you this. How, how, how would you rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10? Is there room for improvement? I believe there's room for improvement for us. I know it's not been an easy message tonight, but I believe it's one we need. God wants us to grow. He wants us to move beyond where we are. And here's the thing, no matter where you are with God tonight, no matter how close you are to Him, guess what? You can always get a little closer. See, that's the thing about our walk with God. We can always get a little closer. We can always go a little deeper. We can always go a little further. Because let's just be honest tonight. If we, if, if we could just really be honest. Sometimes our walk with God, it's like this. And sometimes it's like this. We aren't careful. What the writer of Hebrews talks about, if, that if we neglect this great salvation, you'll drift. You know what it takes to drift? Do absolutely nothing. I used to surf a little bit down at Myrtle Beach. And if you get out there in the waves and you don't keep paddling, you end up a mile down the beach because you did absolutely nothing and you just drift. And the thing is, spiritually, if you never pray, you never read your Bible, if you start forsaking the house of God, you'll look and you'll be like, man, I'm here and God's way off out there. How did I get here? You just neglected. You walk with Him. And you find yourself distant. Here's the thing, God didn't move. But you just, you drifted. I'm thankful for His grace that He says, hey, we can move back. If we draw near to Him, He'll draw near to us. And so maybe tonight, maybe you aren't where you need to be. Not that you're lost, but you just know. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I ought to be. I'm not where I want to be. I want to draw near to Him. Well, you have a promise that if you'll draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. That's the key. You've got to take that first step. I'm going to draw near to Him. When you take that first step, He'll move towards you. Would you stand with me?